If you have your Bible with you, you can open to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32 will be in verses 1 through 14 this morning. Let me do a little bit of uh, place setting, and, if, and um, guys, whoever's running the volume, if we could back down on me just for a little bit, not just for a little bit, for a short period of time, back down on my volume, yeah. I'll give you the sign when I want the big crescendo now. Uh, let me do a little bit of, uh, of place setting for um, Exodus 32 through 34. Um, which most of us, if we are familiar with the Exodus story, know and recognize this as the episode with, uh, with the golden calf. Uh, 32 through 34 really, uh, really needs to be read together. Um, we're going to obviously take it in pieces, and one of the reasons that we're going to do that is because although chapters 32 through 34 um, are clearly a unit to be read together, it, it centers on a specific episode, there is a way in which there, is, um, there are certain key components, particularly in terms of God's nature and his relationship with his people that are highlighted or spelled out in a very deliberate, progressive way. And so we want to try to maximize our attention on the unique elements that this story brings out. So for the next several weeks, we'll be in these chapters, 32, 33, and 34. And then probably by the time we get on the other side of, of, uh, of chapter 34, our Exodus study will probably move fairly quickly um, just because of the nature of what remains in the, um, in the book but we're not going to rush things in this chapter here. And let me say, before we read our passage for today, um, he, let's do it this way. Here's, here's how uh, 32, 32 through 34 sits in the Exodus story. So God has redeemed a people for himself, for his own possession, a, a prized possession. He's going to make them someone special. He does all of that. He delivers them from, uh, from their taskmasters, their slaveholders in Egypt, brings them to himself to meet with him uniquely at Sinai where the Lord reveals himself in visible, audible ways to the people, something that no one else has been able to encounter or, uh, or witness before. The Lord graciously delivers to them his word in the form of the law to say that now as my covenant people this is what our life together will look like and then after chapters 20 through 24 the Lord then enters into an extended discussion with Moses on the mountain he calls Moses back up to him to say now I want you to construct a sanctuary for me so that I can dwell with my people the climax or the culmination of all that the Lord has done for his people is to be understood as creating a life in which God dwells with his people. God is the reward. God is the prize. God is the ultimate blessing. What chapters 32 through 34 make abundantly clear to us is that no matter 
how good the law is, no matter how ornate or precise the tabernacle is that will be constructed for the Lord, no matter how serious or no matter what kind of intentions the people have, the only reason that the Lord will ever dwell with his people is because he is compassionate, gracious, and merciful. There is not a chance that God will dwell with his people in any sort of knowing, intimate, personal way that is based on anything that the people have to offer. It is just, if, if you were under that impression that there was some way that you could earn, or maybe not earn, that you could keep that, 32 through 34 just wrecks that notion for you right out of the gate. So follow along with me as we read Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. We've gotten to the end of the instructions given to Moses. Chapter 31 ends in verse 18 with us being told that when the Lord had finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And we're expecting now in the next chapter that Moses will then go back down, deliver not only the, the tablets in writing, but also the instructions of the tabernacle so that they can get busy building the tabernacle so that God can dwell among them. But before we even get to that, we get 32.1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about or perhaps gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, the people said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Notice there, by the way, just a little pause. He uses the personal divine covenant name. Tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate or stiff-necked people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated or pleaded with the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? 
Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, grant we ask the ability to see not merely a history lesson or a record of some event in the past, but help us to see ourselves in this story. That left to our own devices, we are wayward and stiff-necked people who draw our next breath only because of your pure mercy and grace. Thank you for that gift of mercy and grace in the person of your own son who gave himself up for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So 32, 1 through 14, we're going to try to break this up into two sections, verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 14. And we're going to key in on uh, significant statements that are made in the passage to try to, uh, to, try to encapsulate or to try to um, give us uh, the means by which we can see the major actions that are happening in the story. So 32, 1 through 6, basically what we want to do is we want to look and we want to recognize that in verses 1 through 6, Israel turns from the Lord, or we ought to personalize it more than that, and we ought to say if Israel is like us and if we're like Israel, if, if the analogy works, that we, like Israel, are a people who turn quickly from the Lord. And then in verses 7 through 14, we want to see that the Lord is a God who turns from his anger. We are a people who turn from the Lord, but he is a God who turns from his anger. That's the only reason we continue to exist as his people. So start with me in verses 1 through 6. Most of the time when we read this passage, if you're anything like me, my attention is drawn to the overt, explicit, sinful action or behavior that the people are guilty of, right? The making of the idol, the corruption of true worship, the perhaps playful immorality even that may be lurking in this story, in this text. One of the things I think that we miss, though, is that if we run too quickly to look at the actions of the people, we fail to recognize what, what drives that action. In other words, the problem first and foremost with the people are not the actions per se. The actions are a symptom of a deeper problem, and the deeper problem is their heart. The real problem starts with a lack of faith. So when you go back to the passage and you look in 32.1, notice the way that the scene or the episode is set up, how we're prepared for it. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered about Aaron, there could be a, a, a hint of aggression there. They surrounded him. 
to make a demand. But be that as it may, they assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Do you, do you hear what's going on in verse 1? Moses has gone up on the mountain. The Lord has called him up so that the Lord can speak to him, give him instructions that Moses then will come and deliver back to the people. Moses has been gone, gone for a longer amount of time than what they were expecting, and they don't know what's become of him. Maybe the guy's dead. I mean, God is pretty big, pretty powerful. Maybe Moses did or said something he wasn't supposed to do, and he, he, he's just not here anymore. And so not seeing Moses or not seeing what they are expecting, they then begin to take matters into their own hands. We don't know where Moses is, and by implication, we don't know what we're supposed to do next. We don't know who's going to lead us. We don't know where to go. How are we going to figure this out? Let's make a God. Now understand, while they're looking and not seeing Moses and judging by what their eyes do or don't see, this reflexive reaction on their part to say, we're in trouble, we need to do something, we're nervous or we're anxious, or perhaps we might even be a little bit glad that Moses isn't here. He was getting a little too big for himself. Now we'll just sort of go about the way that we want to do it. Whatever the case is, understand that what they see or don't see, what they can see all this while is the visible manifestation of God's presence on Sinai. We've been told earlier in the chapters that the mountain was in flames as the Lord descended, and that when Moses was called in chapter 25 up to the mountain to be with the Lord, he entered into the cloud. So this man, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, Moses brought them out of Egypt? Who brought them out of Egypt? God brought them out of Egypt. This Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. We don't know what to do. Who's going to go with us? Who's going to be with us and to lead us? They say and they ask these questions while they are under the shadow of God's presence. It's easy for us at this point to think, well, if we had been there, we would not be so foolish. We would not be so hard-hearted. We would not be so easily swayed. You understand, though, that as you continue to read the New Testament, the New Testament would actually tell us that for all of these little episodes that God gives to his people, he has actually given to us more on, on which we can bank our trust and our confidence in him. For all that God has done and revealed in the pages of Scripture, in the person and work of His Son, by the corroborating evidence of His own Holy Spirit who bears witness and testimony to His presence with us, how prone are we to panic when our expectations are not met or when we have a question that is raised to our 
feeble mind. How quick are we to say, I don't know who's going to get me out of this mess. I don't know which direction to go. Maybe I'll find someone else to give me the way and to paint the path for me. At the end of the day, the root problem with Israel is that her heart is not fully trusting and resting in the Lord. That's why she then goes and begins to enter into this flagrant idolatry. So Hebrews 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Do you hear that? What causes us to stray, or what causes someone to fall away from the Lord? It's not the actions. The actions are symptomatic. The disease is the heart. You don't do sin and then find that you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Your evil, unbelieving heart leads you into sin. Every time you disobey the Lord, it is a demonstration that your faith is weak, or in some cases, perhaps, even non-existent, depending on what the test or what the trial is. That's why we sin. If I truly believed that in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy, and in His hand are pleasures forever, would I ever try to find pleasure anywhere else but the Lord? if I really believe that. No, I seek other pleasures because I don't in that moment or in that day, because I don't truly believe and trust that what the Lord has said about himself is true. If I believed fully and concretely that the Lord was a strong tower, that he is a defense for his people, would I ever try to find my security and my comfort in anyone or anything else other than the Lord? No, I wouldn't. But I do that because my heart is weak and wayward. And rather than resting and trusting in his security and in his strength, I try to put it somewhere else. Do you see what happens? Your sin and my sin always flows from a weak or wayward heart. Always. And so from this weak and wayward heart, this unbelief that the people give voice to right from the start, we move from unbelief to disobedience. And disobedience of the worst kind. They gather around Aaron, and they say, make us a God who will go before us. That's, they're breaking the very first command. You will have no other gods. Remember, these are the people who not once, but twice said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Did they not mean it when they said it? 
No, see, here's the dilemma. I think they, they really did actually mean it. In that moment, as they saw the glory and majesty of God, as they heard his thundering voice speak, I think with all the best intentions in the world, they said, we will obey. And then what they come to find almost immediately is that they don't have the kind of hearts that can fulfill that kind of statement. Too weak. Too wayward. Make us a God who will go before us. And then Aaron, the high priest, no less, makes an idol. And when he sees that the people are going to use this idol as a God, Aaron then, perhaps trying to cover himself or diminish the weight, the gravity of this sinfulness, we're told in verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. Well, let's not go full-blown apostasy. Let's just do halfway apostasy, right? I mean, we're not that bad of people. So we'll, we'll take a little bit of the, the, the rampant, the blatant idolatry, but we'll cover it, we'll mask it with God's name, and that'll make everything okay. You ever find yourself doing that? You don't have to raise your hand. Sinning, but trying to find a way through your language or through your reasoning why this sin is not really as bad a sin as what it clearly is because you can dress it up. And they go so far as to do the very things that they are commanded to do in the worship of the Lord. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. They sit down and they fellowship together. Hearts that are weak and fickle, leading to rampant, gross disobedience. Psalm 106, verse 20, sums it up this way to sort of get at the audacity of it all. They exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. Good move, guys. And one of the things that we don't want to run past too quickly here is this observation or recognition. In the verses that follow, where God is on the verge, seemingly, of annihilating his people, this moment in Exodus is when Israel is under her greatest threat. This moment. Israel's greatest threat was never the Egyptians. Israel's greatest threat to her survival and security was never the wilderness. The greatest danger to Israel's life was never a lack of food. It was not even a lack of water. The greatest danger for Israel is where her heart is. 
And people, that is what God is telling us over and over and over again in the scriptures. What does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? Parents and grandparents, if your view of your children or grandchildren's well-being is limited or barely goes beyond the idea that what they need is a good education, a good high-paying job, a happy, beautiful, or handsome spouse, lots of obedient, well-mannered children, if that's your view of blessing and your view of what makes for the good of your children or grandchildren never goes to what they most desperately need, which is a new heart, you're missing all that God is revealing in a passage like this. Their greatest danger is not that they may be unemployed. Their greatest danger is that they may not have God. Your greatest danger, my greatest danger, is not that we won't have sufficient money for retirement. Our greatest danger is that we would find our riches here on earth and have no treasure, no investment in heaven. So these are people who turn from the Lord. By the way, just in terms of the flow of the story, you recognize they have already broken covenant with the Lord, turned from the Lord, before they have even made it out of the starting blocks. And so we come to verses 7 through 14. If these are a people who turn from the Lord so quickly, so blatantly, so obviously, what is God going to do in response? We would expect that he would just snuff them out. Maybe if he's merciful, he'll make it quick. Or he could just draw it out and make it slow. They would deserve that too. Verse 7, the Lord says to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Listen to the way that God describes these people. They have corrupted themselves. This word that's used here is the word that shows up in Genesis 6 when it says that the whole earth was corrupt, and because of that, the Lord destroyed the earth with a flood. It's the same word that shows up in Psalm 14 that says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. That word for a godless fool for the world prior to God's right just judgment is the word that God uses to describe his people. They are corrupt. They're ruined, spoiled, rotten. 
verse 8. They have quickly turned aside. It did not take them long to turn their backs on me. I have seen this people, the Lord says in verse 9, meaning I have seen them, I know what they're really like, right? My gaze, my examining eye sees all things. And what do I see? I see, verse 9, that they are a stiff-necked people. It's not just that these people are corrupt or that they're wayward, right? Disease-ridden. It's that they have no intention of changing. They won't bow their head. They won't turn. They are stiff and rigid in the way that they go by their nature. So because these people are ruined, the Lord says, leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger can burn, and I'll just go ahead and finish the job. I will ultimately ruin them. I will destroy them. Now, let me pause right here for a moment. Because some of you have had this question bouncing around in your head from the moment that we read this passage, and you're wondering, what is Merritt going to do with God changing his mind? Right? Shameless plug for this evening. We will talk about it in more detail and in greater depth in the evening service tonight. But, because it can't be left unaddressed, let me make a couple observations before we run back with the story itself. Okay? The question that we have here, does God change his mind? Or, if we wanted to be more specific, does Moses change God's mind? The answer is, no, God does not change his mind if, by change his mind, you're thinking of the way that we change our minds. Let me give you, th let me give you three observations from the text that would suggest to us that however we understand this changing of mind language, that it's not the way that we change our own minds. Number one. What is being demonstrated in this passage is that for God's people to remain with God, they need someone to intercede for them. And God, from the very beginning, is inviting Moses to intercede on behalf of the people. Right? Moses is up on the mountain. Does Moses know what's happening down below? Clueless has no idea. How does Moses find out? The Lord tells him. And then the Lord tells him what's going on down below and goes so far as to say, now Moses, don't try to hold me back. The Lord reveals to Moses what's happening down there and all but, if we could say it this way, this might be a little crass, baits Moses or draws Moses in 
to interceding on behalf of the people. The Lord wants Moses to intercede. Otherwise, he wouldn't share this with Moses. Second reason, God actually gives Moses the language or the ground on which to intercede. Look at verse 10. Leave me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. Where does that language come from? I will make of you a great nation. That's the promise to Abraham. That's Genesis 12 too. And lo and behold, what does Moses do down in verse 13? God, don't forget your promise to Abraham. God invites Moses to intercede and then even provides for him the language on which he ought to intercede. The promises that he made to Abraham before Moses was ever even born. And then number three, the language of changing your mind is language that is used by Moses. Moses asked God to change his mind. And then we're told that because the Lord listened to his interceding and did not pour his anger out on the people, that the Lord changed his mind. In other words, the, the narrator, the, the storyteller, is using Moses' own language to confirm that Moses has gotten what he has asked for. That is, that God would withhold his anger from his people. Does that mean that Moses interceding, his pleading with God is irrelevant? Not at all. So the Lord looks at his people and says, they are a corrupt people. They quickly turn aside. They are stiff-necked. My anger burns. And then Moses intercedes on behalf of the people so that they will not be destroyed. And look at how Moses intercedes for the people. He does it in three ways. By the way, if you ever ever feel the weight of sin and guilt on your life, you ought to pray like this. We ought to pray like this. This is gutsy, God-glorifying prayers given to a merciful God. Look at what Moses does. Verse 11. Moses pleaded with the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Go back to verse 7. When the Lord informs Moses as to what's going on, what, what does the Lord say? Go down at once for whose people? Your people, Moses, they're not mine anymore. They've shown that. What does Moses say? First words out of his mouth. 
Oh, yes, they are yours. Right? But listen, this is not, this is not, yes, they are yours because I don't want them language. That's not what Moses is saying. They, by their actions, have demonstrated that they are not God-qualified people. They do not deserve anything that God would give them. They have broken covenant. They have turned away from the Lord. The problem is with them, not with God. But what does Moses say? Moses says the whole reason that they're here to begin with is because you brought them here. You bought them. You own them. What are you going to pray when you grieve over your sin? How are you going to plead on behalf of a wayward brother or sister? Are you going to pray, are you going to plead in any way on the basis of something that we or they have done that would earn or warrant God's favor? Or are you going to say, for good or for bad, this person is your child? You bought them. You own them. You have paid the price. You have purchased them. They belong to you. There has to be a way, people, in the midst of our sin, where even though we may not have anything else to offer up to the Lord by way of defense, we fall back on the reality that even the fact that I am here to make this request is first and foremost because of what you have done. You created all this, not me. You made me. You adopted me. I didn't do that. Second thing that Moses says, after saying, these are your people whom you redeemed, the whole reason that they exist is because you created them. Second point of plea. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. You hear what Moses is saying? What will the enemy say? if you show that you are unable to fully save your people. You promised that you were going to take them out of that land and that you were going to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. But if you destroy them here, you look bad. You look like you're unable to fulfill your promises to your people. You could get them out, but you couldn't get them home. And added on to that, and how, God, would you want yourself to be known among the nations? As a God of wrath or as a God of mercy? What would the Egyptians say? 
We should pray like this. We should pray like this. God, if you allow me to wallow and to fester in my sin or in my disobedience or in my weakness, if you do not fully restore me, if you do not give me an increasing progressive victory over sin, if you do not change me, your promises are called into question. You said that you would break the power of canceled sin. You said that I am no longer a slave to sin. You said that I no longer need to fear your wrath and your judgment. So will you allow me to wither away and die? Or will you sustain me and renew me and bring me safely all the way home? How will you be known in my life if you leave me to rot in my sin? And then the last one, number three, verse 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they will inherit it forever. Notice up there at the beginning, verse 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself. You swore on your own name and character that you would do this, that you would fulfill your promises. Listen, people, if Moses can plead for the Lord to withhold his righteous anger on the basis of a promise that the Lord swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how much more secure are we standing under the promise that the Father has sworn on himself to his own son? I have given you a people. You have redeemed them. I will never cast them out. God promises that. So that when we come and when we plead, we're not pleading on the basis of anything that we have done, but what God has promised to do for us. And so the Lord withholds his anger. Hold your place here and go to Micah. Chapter 7, the last three verses. And then we'll go from Micah to Ephesians chapter 2. Micah 7, verses... 18 through 20. JT read from Psalm 113 earlier in the service where the psalmist asked, Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? A high and mighty king. Who is like God? Listen to what Micah says. 718. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? 
and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Do you hear this? Hundreds of years later, God's people are still building their security on the promises of God. What is God like and what has God said? Ephesians 2. Start at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For all of eternity, we will be singing the praises of one who withheld his righteous anger and gave us nothing but mercy and grace undeserved. Not because we deserved it, not because we earn it. What we deserve, he actually withholds from us, and he gives us what we don't deserve in the person of Jesus Christ. If we are to come to God, if we are to remain with God, if we are to live with him, even as his new covenant people, do not mistake the fact that we will be with him because of who he is and because of what he has said. Let's pray. Would you take just a moment to silently reflect on God's word and to pray and to meditate. Father, give to us your children, bought by the blood of your own son, 
made new and alive by the work of your spirit, give to us, we ask, a clearer view of the sinfulness of our sin. That would be so bleak and so dark that the only thing that can overpower it or overshadow it is the brilliant glory of your mercy and grace. We ask that in the darkness of our sin and our weak and fickle hearts that you would cause us to see Jesus shining more glorious and more brilliant than even the darkness of our sin and that we would run to our faithful and sympathetic high priest to find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Thank you that we have someone who intercedes for us who is better and greater and eternal Jesus Christ, the righteous. Thank you that your spirit is even now at work in the hearts and minds of your people, fulfilling and accomplishing your good word. We look forward to the day when we will see this work completed and when we will sing for joy. Until then, help us to be faithful. Help us to keep our eyes on you. In Jesus' name and for his sake we ask this. Amen.